0: Father, we thank you so much for this privilege of being present in the midst of this move. What you're doing right now, God, both those things that we see and those things that we don't see. Father, we trust you right now. Father, thank you that we get to gather together under your word today. And we continue to say yes to whatever you have For us today. Be with us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Sanctuary family, um, it is my honor today to introduce to you our speaker for this morning. In January of this year, we celebrated Sanctuary's 20th anniversary, 20 years of faithful ministry here in North Minneapolis and beyond. And as a part of that celebration, we had the opportunity to hear from our founding pastor, Reverend Dr. Ephraim Smith. We're able to hear uh, his, his heart in founding sanctuary and the work that God has been doing in him and through him since that time. If you've been around sanctuary or even if you were not around sanctuary, you have to know that there were others who God also used to bless and mature this church. One of those people we get to hear from today, someone who I called my father in ministry, I'm talking about our second lead pastor here at the sanctuary, Reverend Dr. Dennis R. Edwards. God knew what God was doing when he called Pastor Ephraim to start sanctuary. And God also knew what God was doing when he called Pastor Dennis to be our second pastor. During his tenure, Pastor Dennis helped us to fall in love with God's word. He taught us the importance of discipleship. And he's one of the reasons that I know without a shadow of a doubt that all the good work that we seek to do in the world, all the work of justice and reconciliation across lines of race, gender and class. He's the reason that I believe none of that is possible apart from it happening in the context of a Bible-believing, disciple-making church. And so if there are things I do and say that get on your nerves, you can blame Pastor Dennis for that. But he has been an incredible part of God's work here at Sanctuary. He shepherded this church from meeting in schools all across North Minneapolis And he led us during the time of the construction of this building that we all are in right now. And if you know, you know. That is a very difficult thing for many churches. And I could literally go on for hours saying how much this man has meant to me. But you didn't come here for that today. And so Sanctuary, will you indulge me? Would you stand on your feet and help me welcome Reverend Dr. Dennis R. Edwards. Thanks again. Thank you, man. Yes, sir.
1: Hmm. Thank you. It really is a privilege and a blessing to be with you all. I, um, uh, I was, I mentioned even at the earlier service how full of emotion I am. I, last time I was here was, uh, Pastor Edwin's installation in July of 2019, and, uh, and left here in J- J- July of 2018. <laughs> yeah, um, And, yeah, I do remember, as some of you, of course, remember well, even before my time, lugging things to Ann Watton Middle School and setting up and taking down, and then to North High School, setting up and taking down. And then um, the Lord allowed us to have this space, and we had been in it, oh, barely a year, when I sensed the Lord was calling me to, to be a full-time professor. i have been a... a um, A PhD in New Testament for a long time and taught adjunct for a long time, but they had a chance to teach full-time. Now I'm actually the dean of North Park Theological Seminary. Uh, Thank you. Thanks. I do appreciate the encouragement. All my friends in administration uh, reluctantly encourage me. They mostly um, mourn for me. I'm getting a lot of feedback. Is that something that I'm doing? I mean, a static. Is that me? It is my phone? Okay. I wonder, that's why I asked, because I didn't have it the first time. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Reverend Dr. Rose. I am, I am, uh, I love you all. I, re- I love you, Pastor Edwin. I love you, Pastor Rose, and I love Sanctuary. I'm really grateful to be back. Um, my wife, Susan, is, uh, is uh, somewhat reluctant to not be here, or sad to not be here. I say that because she's with grandchildren. And uh, when we left, we had one grandson, and now we have five, and uh, so she retired in December, and basically this first quarter of the year, January, February, and into March, I've only seen her a handful of times <laughs> because she has been visiting uh, children in Florida, grandchild in Florida, grandchild in Maryland, grandchild now in Michigan, two grandchildren in Michigan, and, uh, and then she's gonna go back to Maryland because one of them is turning four in, uh, on Tuesday, so she's all around. My daughter Joanna's here, though. I'm excited that Joanna's here today. Yes, thank you. <laughs> when I was a kid, I attended a holiness church that had us into the scriptures a lot. And um, I, we had to memorize Bible verses. We had to recite Bible verses. That was something that was part of the service. We had to stand up in the praise and testimony service and give a Bible verse, or the older folks would you know, have a whole long litany of things that they were thanking and praising God for. And, uh, and they would say it that way. They give honor to God and, uh, and the pastor and go down the list. And, and then they thank the Lord for waking them up this morning and starting them on their way, clothed in their right mind with the activity of their limbs. These were the things that were going on. And, and we little kids didn't know what to do with all that. So we were encouraged to stand up and say a Bible verse. So, you know, the quick kids got up and said, Jesus wept and got down because... <laughs> It is a whole verse, and, um, but I memorized a lot of scripture, but in the par- process of memorizing scripture, I wasn't really taught how to study the scriptures, and in fact, I wasn't even uh, clear what the scriptures were supposed to do. Pastor Edwin had said earlier today about having joy when we come together and to sing and have joy and even dance, and I grew up in a church that was pretty stoic that people were, uh, they, they did holy dancing, sure, but there was still a lot of... Um, It didn't feel like a fun atmosphere for the most part. Uh, Church was pretty rigorous and uh, stoic and intense and a lot of self-righteous people. And I'm not going to spend all my time talking about that. But even though I learned a lot of scripture... I didn't always learn how to engage in the scripture or what it was supposed to be. Yet, when I got my call in ministry, I was still formed in a world that said pastors should be good in scripture and should know how to treat the Bible. And uh, that's becoming a little less so. I'll be honest. Now, as the dean of the seminary, I'm getting a lot of people say, well, we don't need all that Bible and theological uh, stuff. We don't need you know, systematic theology. We need to teach people how to manage budgets and personnel and stuff. And I was like, yes, I understand. It is a business, too. There's a lot that's going on. So now, as a dean, I'm trying to help people say, well, there still is a role for for the Bible. I still would like you to understand something about this Bible. So I'm coming today as part of your series. I, um, I mentioned I'm the Dean of North Park. I also wanted to share with you a couple of personal things uh, that hopefully could be an encouragement to you. Uh, you're my friends and family, even though many I haven't met personally in the last few years. But I do, I have a, I have a book that you've been looking at, some of you, for this series, uh, What is the Bible and How Do We Understand It? Um, and uh, But I have a few books that are coming out this year, um, or chapters in books. I wanted to share that with you. I forgot to put it up on a picture. But um, one is a book I'm co-editing with a friend of mine at Princeton Theological Seminary, Lisa Bowens. And we're co-editing a book called um, Do Black Lives Matter? Subtitle, How the Scriptures Speak to Black Empowerment. There's a collection of some brilliant essays in there. Lisa and I each have an essay Um, And Pastor Ephraim I invited to write an essay. He actually transcribed a sermon. We have a few sermons that are in there as essays. And so we have academic essays and sermons. It's a really great compilation available next month. Um, So that's one book. And then there's a book called um, The Dictionary of Paul and His Letters. It's a scholarly compendium of essays that InterVarsity does. They're uh, updating the second edition now. And I have three essays in there. Um, dictionary of Paul and his letters, so that's also available in April. Another one in the spring is a book called *The Least of These*, edited by Angie Ward from Denver Theological Seminary, and I have an essay in there on justice called *Do Not Withhold Good*. And um, and then a book that I've written called *Humility Illuminated*. It's a sort of a biblical theology of humility with a lot of practical instruction, which will come out in the fall with uh, in a varsity Academic. So. I'm grateful to have this, those opportunities to have written stuff. You know, when everybody was on lockdown and complaining, we introverts were like, writing. So we're trying to get some stuff done. But I appreciate all of you, and if you're interested, those things are out there. Let's look at a passage of scripture that will be our place to go when we talk about the idea of being better together in our biblical understanding it's colossians chapter 3 starting at verse 12 <clears throat> therefore as god's chosen people holy and dearly loved clothe yourselves with compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone forgive as the lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love Lord blesses the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. We are grateful, Lord God, for this opportunity that we have to look into the scriptures together. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to communicate in a way that would be helpful and fruitful for your people. And Lord, help me to, uh, to, to, to communicate the truth from these wonderful words of life. And I ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to guide us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This passage is really more about the communal life of the church as Paul's given instructions to the church of Colossae up there in what we call Turkey now. And in that, those instructions for this one another life includes letting the word or in the NIV it says the message of Christ dwell among you richly. I like the translation among you. The old King James would have said, in you, and we Americans tend to read every Y-O-U in the Bible as singular because we think it's all about us. So, but that word of Christ dwelling among you, there's a communal sense of how the word of Christ is supposed to be at work among God's people. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about today, this communal sense of the word of God and among God's people. When I get to teach Bible, which is I love to do, and I get to do it at the seminary level, um, I often show this cartoon. Now, this cartoon, I, I came across this cartoon. I was a really young pastor. I was younger than Pastor Rose, <laughs> and I cut it out of a, out of a journal, um, leadership journal. I didn't think to write the date or anything. I didn't think to cite it. I didn't have my doctorate then, and I was thinking, oh, this is just cute. Now, if I want to cite it, I can't put it in a publication because I don't know where it came from. But I'm gonna show it to you. I know it's a leadership journal, I just don't know when. And uh, I used to have it on a, overhead, a transparency for overhead projector, that tells you how long it's been. But the caption here says, I think Paul wants everyone to say what this verse means to you. Now, when I first read it, I busted out laughing, I was laughing so hard, that's why I had to save it. Because that's pretty much every Bible study I've ever been in my life, is when you go around and say, well, what does this verse mean to you? And, and then if you think about it, that Paul would want us to do that. Uh, there are so many levels to this that just made me crack up. Now, some students, when they look at it, they, they start to do exegesis on the cartoon itself. Like, why are they dressed this way? Who gets to hold the scroll? All those things. I'm not asking us to break it down like that. It's just, but that caption is really kind of intriguing because it's, it, well, I could ask you if we were in class, I'd ask you what you would find interesting about the, about the caption, but I'm, I'll, I'll, I don't have time for that. So I'm gonna work with things that people have said to me in the past. For some, it was funny. People in my age group have been in a lot of Bible studies and a lot of church and it was funny. And part of the funny part is the apostle Paul from what we know of him, doesn't particularly want you to project meaning onto this passage. He's trying to communicate something to you. So it would be really absurd for Paul to say, no, no, you just tell me what you think I mean. (laughs) But I noticed that people stopped laughing when when I showed the cartoon. And in fact, nobody laughed when I showed it just now. Nobody here. Because folks who are older like me would say, oh, of course Paul doesn't want us to invite our meaning onto something. He has a message that he's trying to communicate. And they would say that this kind of Bible study is pretty subjective, that all you're doing is saying what you think something means. And we've all been in Bible studies like that. We've all been in Bible studies where the most uh, dynamic person in the room is telling us what things should mean. And even if we don't agree, we sit there and nod our heads because, you know, it's that person. They're the extrovert or, or they're the person who seems so strong in the room that we don't really want to challenge that person until we get into the parking lot and we challenge them, you know, just with our friends. But <laughs> God, I know how things go. I've been at church work for a long time. I'm just telling you. Um, so, so there's a certain subjectivity with this. Yet, on the other side of it, and I'm finding with younger people particularly, it's not funny at all. They say, of course I should say what it means. There's an expectation that they're supposed to give their meaning to something and almost forget that this is ancient communication, that there actually was a Paul who wrote words to some people and he had an agenda in writing them. We almost forget. It's almost irrelevant to us. It's like, well, just read some verses to me and if they make me feel good, then yes, I affirm them. they don't make me feel very good, then I don't want to read them anymore. And we forget that they're ancient communication to real people at a real point in time. So when it comes to studying the Bible, it's helpful to remember that it is an ancient library. It comes all intact now. I know you can go get it in the store. You can take one out the hotel room and it's all, all put together for us. The Holy Bible. And we think it all came at the same time because we can buy all the words at the same time. So we'll read a verse here, read a verse there, read a verse here, throw it all together and make a, you know, a word salad. And that would be you know, good enough. And we forget that it's communication, a library compiled over time. Now, you're getting a little bit of New Testament scholar stuff here. So please don't fall asleep. Well, if you fall asleep, that's OK. Consider a nap a gift that I'm giving to you. <laughs> These books were compiled over time by many people. And even though the Holy Spirit inspired the writing, still used people. I mean, of course, God could have just written it in the sky. God could have just written it on a wall like in Daniel. It's not, it's not like God needed people to put a pen to paper. God used people, real people in real time to write what they knew, what they thought, what they perceived, what they heard from God and write with their psyches intact with their world around them, engaging all that it is. It's a human and divine book. So there's a few things i like to point out when I talk about studying the Bible. That's the first one, is that Scripture tells a story, and it isn't a collection of magical incantations. Now, some people do approach the Bible that way. If you've seen any of those kind of mystical sort of movies, and some of you, you know, you Christians don't go to movies, but (laughs) some, some people would see a movie like, you know, like Harry Potter, a whole bunch of them, and uh, the mummy and there's like a whole bunch of them. But there's always a scene in a movie like that where somebody comes across something mystical and they recite it. They say an incantation or they read from some ancient book and stuff starts happening, you know, Wingardia Leviosa. You don't know what's making the thing rise. You just know it's doing it, right? I mean, you're taught to say the spell like Hermione does. And uh, don't worry, I was just saying something came from a movie. I don't actually believe that. That's <laughs> just, just, just a little disclaimer, just so you know. <laughs> anyway, um, but for some people, when, you, when, when, when they read the Bible, they, they wanted to do the same thing. That if they read the incantation, then the magic is supposed to start happening. And the Bible is not meant to do that. It's meant to do something on us. It's meant to do something to us. It's meant to do something through us. Now, God does work powerfully, but that's what the Bible is doing. It's helping us connect to that powerful God, not just words in the abstract. So the Bible tells a story. That story is a Christ-centered story. Jesus is a climactic part of the Bible. The Bible certainly tells us about a trinity, tells us about so many things, about people, places, events, all sorts of things. But Jesus is clearly a central figure there. The The Old Testament is building up to the coming of Jesus. The New Testament reflects on the life of Jesus telling us about him and telling us some things about the Christian community in light of him coming and even anticipates him coming again. So Jesus is central to the the scriptures. Um, The scripture's story becomes clearer with the Holy Spirit's guidance is my next uh, point there. The scripture becomes clear with the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, look, you don't have to be a Christian to study the Bible. I mean, anybody can study ancient languages and and, and understand the, the words and the things that are on the page. But if you want the story to become clearer and have meaning for your life, that's a spiritual enterprise, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But the point I want to emphasize today, since this is my turn, um, the invitation for this week, is that Scripture's story is best discerned in community. Scripture's story is best discerned in community, and I'm going to talk about what I mean by that community, because God uses people to help us understand what the Scriptures are saying. And I've come to believe that point, really. Scripture stories best discerning in community. I was part of a church where a person had positioned herself as a prophet, and a lot of people were really just really taken by this woman in many ways. And she, at times, well, much of the time, exploited that. And it was really, it was kind of sad to see, and in, and in one tragic situation, she had prophesied that a person who was dying of cancer was going to, to live, she had had prophesied this person who was single and not married or anything, but would eventually marry and have a child. She said the sex of the child, said the name of the child, and all this elaborate stuff, and wouldn't let me go see this person because apparently I wasn't going to co-sign on all the prophecy. But finally, a friend of mine said, look, you're the shepherd. Go see your sheep. So I went, took one of the elders of the church with me, and when we got there, the family, and the irony of all this is that the sick woman's father is an oncologist, a cancer doctor, And he's talking to the elder while I'm talking to the young sister who was dealing with the cancer. And when my friend and I were driving back home, he was telling me how frustrated the family is because this young woman would not talk about final arrangements, would not talk about implications of what happened if she died because she was convinced that she was not going to die. Um, She did die. And I know, depending on your background, you might have been hoping the story was going to go another way, that the prophet would have been proven right, but no, it, it, was, it was a horrible mess, and I'm in the middle of it as a pastor trying to negotiate a lot of these things. And honestly, I think the story wouldn't have gone the way that it went if there was a broad enough community of people who were studying the Bible together, because in their study, they both told me this, that they were studying together, just the two of them, and the wind blew, and the Bible opened to Ezekiel 37, the, the story of the dry bones, and so they got this word from God that there would be a a rebirth, a resurrection, uh, if you will. All of those things sound actually kind of cool, but that doesn't say anything about what was happening in that Bible passage. And unfortunately, it took a whole bunch of people down a particular path. It's not the first time that's ever happened in human history or in church people's history. So when I talk about interpretive community, I'm referring to a community that's broader than that of a couple of people or even broader than a local church. Because I'm referring to a community that spans a couple of thousand years. Because Christianity, despite what Americans think, is more than 200 years old and didn't start in the United States. So a few things about the interpretive community. First, our interpretive community includes experts who know ancient languages and other things about the ancient world. As one of my former colleagues, Dr. Klein Sniggrass, would say, it's not original to him, but he would say it. The Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And this is, it takes into account the fact that we have an ancient document written in a language that wasn't ours, written to people in an agrarian world. I mean, so many things about that world different than ours. So if we respect that, then we ought to pay attention to those things. So our interpretive community then takes into account people who can deal with that. And I know not everybody's into that. You know, I mean, that's, that stuff's exciting to me, so I spend a lot of my time doing that. I know it's not exciting to everybody. They would rather just say, just give me a Bible first so I can go home. And I get that. And you want to buy a bookmark that says, when you're happy, read this. When you're sad, read that. I understand. But if you want to know what the Bible's saying, then it does mean you need to do a little bit more work. Nobody wants to do work. I get it. But it's fun work. It's investigative work. Now, it is academic work. And, and there's a lot of people who think, well, I don't want church to be work, academic work. So when I grew up in a church that made light of, of study, made light of, uh, of, of a higher education, in fact, was negative about it. And then people who are in the church, they think they're funny. And they say, oh, you go to cemetery instead of seminary because, you know, the place where you go for your faith to die. And that's I've heard that joke so many times in my life that I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. And now I'm the dean of one of that. <laughs> but the interpretive community does respect the fact that that Bible, we need some expertise on on that ancient world. So we buy things like commentaries and dictionaries and books to help us. So that's part of our interpretive community: our people with expert skills in certain areas. Another part of our interpretive community. Is, is, is the uh, breadth of human existence that's not just uh, white European men and their descendants. Now, when I went to seminary, that was like the standard. I went back a long time ago. It was in the 80s. And that was the standard. We had to have white European theology given by you know, white guys of European descent. And that was, that was the way it was. In fact, the school I went to, they would boast in their ads, come study with the men who wrote the books. Emphasis on men. <laughs> and they were white guys who wrote the books. I mean, it was a pretty arrogant slogan. I, I remember talking with somebody in the airport about it many years later, and he goes, what's wrong with that? Because he was a white guy. Was like, so For him, it was like, of course, you want to study? Well, I think there's more to our study than, the, than, the, than a particular stream that comes through a certain group. And in fact, it should include people from a variety of backgrounds. Scholars are paying much more attention to that now, partly because society made them, but also it just makes sense That people have a variety of backgrounds. We call that background social location. That our social location has implications for how we read and even understand Scripture. Now, I could spend a whole day talking about that. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to give you a little illustration. It comes from a scholar named Mark Allen Powell. He's written an Old Testament, I'm sorry, New Testament um, introduction. He has some YouTube videos called Seven Minute Seminary, I think. Anyway, uh, he has one on social location, <clears throat> and he gives an example using Luke chapter 15, the, the, the son who ran away, the lost son, the, the prodigal. And he asked just a simple question. He asked his students, you know, why or how did it come about that the young man is tempted to eat the pig food when he's at that place in his life? How did that come about? He's not asking for any theological you know, ruminations on that, just in the story itself, how did it happen that he was doing that? So you can tell me real quick, how did it happen that he was doing that? Well, he was definitely hungry, but that's, that's, a, that's a why, but what's the how? How did he come to do that? He spent all of his inheritance, and that's the typical answer he would get from Westerners, typical answer he'd get from people in America. It says it in the story, he spent all that he had. Now, when he, asked, when he taught this in St. Petersburg, he asked them that same question. About 80 to 85% of his students said, because there was a famine in the land. And in their collective consciousness, they remember during a war when the city was besieged and over half the population died of starvation. It says that in the text. There was a famine in the land. We typically think about the money. That's the thing that we Westerners typically think about. So he asked the same question in Tanzania to East Africans about 80, 85% of them said, well, nobody practiced hospitality. They didn't give him anything to eat, which it says in the story, too. It says he spent all his money. There was a famine in the land. Nobody gave him anything to eat. But we think about the money. So that we, in fact, in fact, call the guy the prodigal son. He wastes his money. We could call him the hungry son. We could call him the lonely son. I mean, there's a lot of ways we could describe him after he got to that point in his life. But for us, it's about the money. So it doesn't change what happened in the story. But what his illustration has given us is that different eyes on the passage start to ask different questions and start to prompt a few other insights. So our interpretive community ought to pay attention to social location. Another way of saying that is that we all bring a certain set of lenses to our Bible reading, and often we don't respect that. I was at a, at a, preaching at a camp one time, and this guy it was a white guy who was hearing me speak, and I was actually talking. I was a young guy, my goodness. This was probably 30 years ago, and I'm preaching at this camp. I used to do a lot of family camp speaking, and, and he came up to talk to me later, and he said, well, there was a black family in his church. His camp was almost all white, and uh, he said he didn't understand why this black family left the church. When they left, the father said, well, I don't have to be white to be a Christian, and this guy said to me, well, what does he mean? He said, we just do things according to the Bible. I said, everybody thinks that. I said, you probably meet at 11 on a Sunday morning. That's not in the Bible. I said, you sing songs of European background. That's not in the Bible. And I started listing off all these things. I said, you do because your church decides to do them. They're not particularly biblical. And he sat there just kind of dumbfounded, like he didn't know how to respond to me. Because a lot of what we do is a, is a product of the, our social location. Our interpretive community, thirdly, expa- spans time. It's ancient as well as contemporary. So just because something is old doesn't mean it's bad or wrong which is good for me to hear because I'm getting old now. (laughs) So Christianity, like I said, is more than a couple hundred years old, so it's reasonable to think, what did our ancient forebears think about Scripture? What what did the words of Jesus mean to illiterate peasants in North Africa? What did our African-American ancestors think about Scripture? My friend that I mentioned earlier today, Lisa Bowens, I mentioned a few minutes ago at Princeton, she has a whole book on African-American interpretation in the 17th and 18th centuries, at least how they interpreted Paul, when you look at, or more like the 18th, 19th century, sorry, um, interpreting Paul. And I mean, there's a history of people reading the scripture that just didn't start with us in this room. And so, and just because you read something and it got a tingle down your spine, it doesn't mean you know how the passage landed on the ears of the first listeners, or even how it mattered to them. So I want us to practice a little bit. I just got a couple of minutes left. So I just can give you a little example If you look at Psalm 121 with me, I'm going to read it kind of quickly and then just ask a few questions, which is my modus operandi here. Psalm 121, it says this, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Now, if, if we had time, like we were doing this as a Bible study, I would ask a bunch of questions. But the first thing I would ask is this heading under Psalm 121. It says a song of ascents. If you notice, it says it in 120, 122, 123. There's a whole bunch of them. Anybody know what a song of ascent means? Yeah, I see a hand. It's hard for me to see a hand, so you could just say it. Uh, It's songs that they would sing on the way to the temple. Yes, songs that that Jewish pilgrims would sing on the way to the temple. Temple's going uphill, so it's always up to Jerusalem. A song of ascent is a song you sing, right, going to the temple. Now, when I was younger, I heard umpteen sermons from this, this, actually, not just when I was younger, blood of my life. I heard many, many sermons from this. The old King James, by the way, doesn't have a question mark. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, from whence cometh my help. So now the whence implies a question, but that's a whole grammar thing. We won't go down this road right now. But I've heard so many sermons about people looking up at the hills to find God, which seems to be just the opposite of what the the, the, hymn, the psalm is teaching us. Once I know it's a psalm of ascent, which is information I gather from a book, believe it or not, because I didn't naturally know what a song of ascent meant, hence my interpretive community included an expert analysis. So if our brother wasn't in the room, we'd have to look it up, a song of ascent. So once I know that, now I've got all these references to hills and to traveling and to feet slipping and to sun at the morning and moon at the night and harm on the way. I mean, it makes sense that we've got the song of a pilgrim who's got to travel. He's setting out and sees the the rough terrain, can't fly over it, can't drive around it. He's got to walk it and says, I see all this I got to deal with. Where's my help going to come from? Word of reassurance from the Lord. Well, that's where I'm starting, but it's reasonable then to ask a bunch of questions I have. I tell my students, if you're doing an Exodus paper for me, you might want to talk to your children or to some children because children ask good questions. They ask the questions that you think you already know the answers to. And some of them actually have been doing this. I mean, why, why is it a poem? Why do we have this as a song? I mean, that's a, that's, the medium might be part of the message. I, got, I could spend a whole lot of time on that too, but I don't have a lot of time. But, but, but it's a question. I mean, once I know that the genre exists, it's reasonable reason why we ask, why didn't he just make a list and say, look, God watches over you, God takes care of you, and just make a list. Why did we sing earlier today? Things that we could have just stood up on the platform and recited. Because music is part of the message. The medium is part of it. So the, the fact that it's poetry means something. How might the song have sounded to an ancient Israelite who's got to make their way to the temple? Maybe it makes sense to sing on your way over an arduous journey. How might that poem fit into all of Scripture's story, how we understand God, the maker of heaven and earth? What it might it suggest about Jesus? Now, we can ask the Holy Spirit for guidance because we want to know, well, how might this song speak to my situation? I'm not trekking over mountains, but I do have a journey to, to traverse. And then being an urbanite or a suburbanite, whose voice are we missing? I mean, we're talking about agrarian people here, and none of us are really that, or maybe there's a few farmers here, but for the most part, we're not that. So, And then what other questions might remain? So when we're doing Bible study, it's not, for me, it's not just finding a little something that makes me feel warm inside, it's trying to make me find out as much as I can about what's happening there and how it might resonate with my world and my story. So practically speaking, here we are, asking questions of a passage, Starting to dig into it a little bit, but then we get to the conclusion and we have to say, well, so what? Which is what I tell my students to do, too. If you're writing a paper, you might answer a bunch of questions. But so what? We come to the Bible with a certain posture, I argue. The first one is a posture of humility. Submission to God is how I define humility. A submission to God that seeks peacemaking with others. And when it comes to Bible study, humility helps us to be good and not just be right. I used to think that studying the Bible was to win arguments against people who were fighting something and, and I had to somehow fight back with the Bible. I used to think that. That's the way I came up through the late 70s and into the 80s, that the Bible was about fighting and winning some kind of a battle. I don't think that anymore. I study the Bible to be the best dentist I can be. I don't need to win anything. I mean, God has already won. And the best thing I can do in this journey is to be the best me I can be because that will help other people to the best, whoever you are. Secondly is teachability, related to humility, but specifically a posture of openness, because no one human, no one human besides Jesus knows everything, not even you. And also energy. I suggested this already, that um, the Holy Spirit doesn't necessarily bless laziness. We look for something quick and a quick fix or something make us feel warm, and we don't put in the work. But it's in, that, it's in this passage of uh, 2 Timothy over in chapter 2, where in the old King James, it says, study to show yourself to prove a worker that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. Um, it's a good 1611 word, study. But for us, when we hear study, we think just about the books. For them, study meant a devotion, a way of life. So you see in almost every translation now, modern translation, it'll say, make every effort or be diligent is how we translate that word, spudazo, to make every effort. But study meant something like that back in the day, because remember the old song, gonna lay down my burden down by the riverside, gonna study war no more. Ain't gonna study war no more, because study meant I'm not gonna commit myself to this, right, I'm not gonna devote myself to that, I'm not gonna be diligent about that thing. So study is really more than just the head, it's, 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 it's a commitment to our whole selves, So we put in energy when we're trying to understand something that God is telling us. I also encourage a confident curiosity, confident to ask questions, because genuine curiosity can guide our understanding. And then, as I mentioned earlier, faith. You don't have to be a Christ follower to study the Bible. The words are there for anyone to study. But with faith, you get an understanding of how the voice of Jesus comes through to help us be the people we're supposed to be. It will guide my behavior because I want to be more like Jesus. So as I wrap up, let me just look at 2 Timothy 3.16, a passage that you have engaged in your study earlier. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So part of my so what is The practical part, after I've engaged, after I've thought about what the scripture might mean, after I've listened to voices that are not my own social location, I try to do the things that this passage says. If it's about teaching, what have I learned? If it's reproof, what issues in my life or the life of my community have been revealed? If it's for correction, what might we need to repent from? If it's for training in righteousness, what decisions might you and your community need to make that will lead to right actions? For equipping, what good works are going to follow our encounter with Scripture? Those are some practical questions that I think are worth asking, and not just about um, our own personal journeys, but our corporate journeys. Well, sisters and brothers, like I said, I get into this stuff. I could spend a lot of time doing this. I hope I wasn't too boring of a classroom session. I love exploring the scriptures, but I don't worship the scriptures. I worship the God who gave us the scriptures. The Bible's not a science book. It's not a math book. It's not even a history book, believe it or not. It's a divine love story that's showing us the ugliness of evil and the beauty of salvation. And here, here's the controversial part, perhaps. The Bible doesn't give us all the answers to all of our questions. Rather, it guides us on a path of faith to trust God, who knows that we have these questions and that we have doubts and even fears, but he meets us in our humanness and guides us to a better way. So right now we're looking through a dim mirror. We know in part, one day we will know fully, even as we are fully known. So my encouragement is that when you go to the Bible, I mean, open the Bible together, Open the Bible with people. Open the Bible with voices and people that that have long gone but left words for us to to look at and continually explore how we can be more and more a part of God's love story to this world. God bless you, my sisters and brothers. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we, we thank you, Lord God, for all that you have been doing in our lives and in life together. Lord, I thank you so much for the sanctuary and and for allowing me to be here today, oh, Lord, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm moved to see so many people joining in membership, to see uh, this church growing and thriving. I thank you so much for the leadership. And Lord, we pray that your will will continue to be done as the light shines forth here and beyond, and that you would be pleased with the work that is happening here, continually pleased with the work that's happening here, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen, amen. God bless you, thank you.
0: church family. Can you put your hands together one more time? Help me thank God for Pastor Dennis. I want to be like you when I grow up, Pastor Dennis. <laughs> I seriously, I, I, I don't know that there's ever been a time where you taught us from the Bible and I haven't walked away like, I didn't see that there. It, th- that's a gift. Um, thank you for you are. Thank you for the courage to be yourself, Um, and thank you for how you've loved us since that day long, long ago when you and Susan came to be a part of God's work here. Sanctuary family, today we get to close out our service together by taking part in communion. Within our denomination, the Covenant Church, there are two sacred practices, two sacraments that we share in together One is baptism, and the other is communion. And in the practice of communion, we believe that as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup together, that in some mysterious way that God is with us. Not only is God with us, God is with us and is forming us into the people of God together. That we are being shaped and formed even now as we sing together as we read God's word, as we sit together under anointed teaching, and as we come to these practices month after month and all throughout the year. And so I want to invite us today to see this as not just some tradition or empty practice, but to remember that God is with us and God is using this right now to form us into who who he's called us to be. We want to invite you now to prepare yourselves for communion. On the way in, you should have received our elements, but if you did not receive communion elements, can you just wave your hand up, hold your hand up, and our hospitality team would be happy to help out. If you just keep them up. see quite a few hands, hospitality team. If you're watching at home this morning, we want to encourage you there to go ahead and grab some bread or and some some water or juice, whatever you have available to you at home as we prepare for communion together. Francine, right there in the center. Yep. And we have one here on the front. man The apostle Paul teaches us that on the night he was betrayed our Lord Jesus took bread and when he had blessed it he broke it and said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me sanctuary family you may now and eat of the bread Later that night, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. We may now drink together. The Apostle Paul goes on to say that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. And that's an encouragement to us until he comes. That right now in communion, we celebrate that God is with us in some mysterious way, but there is coming a day where he will be with us in the fullness of who he is, and we will be made like him. Brothers and sisters, I pray today that you've been blessed by our time together. I pray today that you've been encouraged to do as the Old Testament writer says, to eat the book, to digest God's word and have it grow us and mature us into the people he's called us to be. But that is not individual work. Let's do that work together. Thank you for leaning into this series, people of the book. I don't know what all God has in store for us as a church, but I know we will need to be equipped with God's word to be who God is calling us to be. Pastor Dennis, thank you for, again, being with us and investing in us today. And I pray that all of us have been blessed by this time together. Let's stand together for our benediction. Pastor Dennis is going to be available out in the lobby to shake hands and greet... All of you who hasn't seen in a while, we want to encourage you to pick up uh, his books, the ones that he mentioned, particularly the one that uh, we are in many ways shaping this series after. What is the Bible? It's a really small book, very easy to read and understand. Would encourage you all to grab that as well. But we thank you so much, Sanctuary, for allowing us to be a part of your week. You do not have to be here. There are many other places you could have been. We thank God for the chance to worship together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the gift, the blessing of your word. God, thank you for the ways in which you, through your word, you teach us, correct us, rebuke us, train us in righteousness, equip us to be the men and women of God you called us to be. God, thank you for the ways in which you help us to see ourselves through your eyes. And thank you for the ways in which you you encourage us away from the lies of this world. God, bless my brothers and my sisters who are in this room. Bless every person who's watching this online. I pray, God, that this week we might be reminded over and over again how much you love us. And God, as we live our lives out as beloved sons and daughters, I pray that others would be blessed by our lives as well. Father, we love you. And we're so grateful to know that you first loved us. Be with us now in Jesus' name we pray. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us as faultless before his glorious presence with exceeding joy. To the all wise God, our savior be all glory honor, majesty, dominion, and power through Jesus Christ our Lord forever and ever. Sanctuary family, would you join me by saying amen, amen, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.